You need to so love that person who is sinfully attacking you that instead of thinking about getting even, you're thinking about that person's good. We should be so genuinely interested in that person's good because we love them that we will do whatever needs to happen, even if it means personal sacrifice. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does the Bible say about the purpose of a nation's judicial system? How can you understand the difference between personal offense, where retaliation is prohibited by Christ's commands, and justifiable cause in seeking authentic legal recourse? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom is continuing his current series with part six of An Eye for an Eye. We're looking at Matthew chapter five, concerning how Christ's followers are to respond to personal injustice. Today, Tom will provide some practical biblical principles to help you know how to handle these types of situations in your life. The question is, will you heed the upward call of Christ or will you define your own path for retribution. Open your Bible now as we join Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. Why was Judah carried off into captivity? Well, there are a number of answers to that question, but one of them has to do with this very issue. In Lamentations, which is a a little book between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, in which Jeremiah laments the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, and listen to one of the reasons God gave. This is Lamentations 3, verse 33. God does not afflict, and notice the marginal note here, I love this, God does not afflict from his heart. God doesn't find delight in this or grieve the sons of men. To crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land... But here's why. Here's part of the indictment. Because there are those who, who crush prisoners, who deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, and they were defrauding a man in his lawsuit. Of these things, the Lord does not approve. Part of the reason, part of the indictment, part of the justification for God's bringing the judgment of the Babylonians on his people was because of their utter abuse of justice in the legal system that he had set up. Even as New Testament believers, God allows us to have legal redress for the wrongs done to us, to defend ourselves. In fact, in in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, you're going to be falsely accused and you're going to be brought before court. When that happens, I want you to defend yourself in court against those charges. Don't think ahead of what you're going to share. Instead, it'll be given to you at that moment. But you have the right to defend yourself in that legal system. You're going to be falsely accused. Paul certainly did that in the book of Acts. He uses the Roman court system to defend himself against the false charges of insurrection, rebellion against the empire. Now, when I say that God has no problem with Christians using the legal system in their defense in the pursuit of justice, the obvious question that comes up is about what passage? 1 Corinthians 6. 
What about that? What is Paul teaching there? Doesn't that passage forbid Christians from using the legal system? Well, because it's so important to this issue, let's turn there for a moment. 1 Corinthians 6. Just to remind you, the Corinthian church had all kinds of problems. It was uniquely gifted, but it also was tolerating all kinds of sin, from petty divisions, squabbles, to allowing a man who had committed incest to remain in the church undisciplined, drunken brawls at the love feast and the Lord's table, the abuse of tongues. And here in 1 Corinthians 6, they were suing one another in secular courts. Verse 1, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In the millennial kingdom, the saints are going to judge the world. If the world is judged by you, if that's going to happen, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? And I think here the word judge probably has more to do with the idea of rule. We're going to rule over angels. They're ministering spirits for our benefit. Well, if that's going to happen, how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud by initiating these lawsuits. You do this even to your brethren. Now, there are a couple of very important points to note about this paragraph. First of all, notice that it is not about criminal wrongdoing, but disputes over money, finances, and property. Notice verse 7. Why would you not rather be defrauded? That is, lose some financial, financial advantage. If someone has committed a crime, under most circumstances, that crime should be reported to the government. According to Romans 13, government exists to punish evildoers. Sadly, sometimes that even includes Christians. But secondly, I want you to notice what this passage is not teaching. My father-in-law used to say, we need to let the Bible say what it says. What does Paul say here? It does not say that when another Christian wrongs you, you must, from the start, simply suffer wrong. That's not what this passage says. Instead, Paul demands that disputes among Christians should be settled among Christians in the church. That's what he's saying. His admonition assumes that the two disputing believers are in the same church in this case, or, or at least in churches, both of whom are willing to deal responsibly with the sin and the problem. So here's the point of, of 1 Corinthians 6. If you have a dispute with another Christian, it should be settled without involving unbelievers. But if that's not possible, Paul says, then it's better for you to suffer wrong and to lose money than for two Christians to be suing each other in civil court. But what Paul does not forbid in 1 Corinthians 6 is either A, seeking justice in the church if the person's a professing Christian, 
or B, using the legal system when it's someone outside the church who has wronged you. In other words, God is still interested that things be brought to a just conclusion. We just can't do it in the way that the Corinthian believers were doing it. So just to sort of summarize, what are the legitimate legal recourses for a Christian who's been wronged? If you've been wronged, what are the legitimate ways legally for that to be expressed? First of all, if a crime has been committed by a fellow Christian, it ordinarily needs to be reported to the government. Romans 13, government exists to punish evildoers, and we are not to protect people from the consequences of their choices. Among Christians, the most common expression of this, unfortunately, happens in domestic violence in the home. If you are the, the recipient of domestic violence, if your spouse is hitting you, is physically violent towards you, don't guard and protect that person from the consequences of his choices. Come see an elder. Let's talk about how to approach the situation. But in the end, if that person begins to be physically violent, call the police and have them arrested. Government exists to punish evildoers. And at that moment, that person is being an evildoer. So that's what we're to do if it's a crime. But what if it's a dispute between two Christian brothers and they're unable to settle it on their own? You try first, obviously, to settle it on your own. But if you're unable to do that, in the end, bring it to the church. Bring it to the elders. What if you've been harmed or injured by a business, a company, or by an unbeliever? What do you do then? Well, it is biblically appropriate to pursue a just settlement and rightful just damages through the legal system. Read the Old Testament law. If a person had culpability, they had financial responsibility to the person that was harmed. That's a biblical concept, and it's not wrong for a Christian to pursue that in the court system. But, and here's the key, never with a bitter, vindictive spirit, never with a desire to hurt or carry out revenge on the other person or on that business. It's simply about reflecting the image of God that justice, as God has laid it out, be done. Now, what if you're taken to court by someone else? That happens. You don't initiate it, but you're taken to court. What do you do? The biblical answer is you have every right to defend yourself. We saw that in the case of Jesus' command to his disciples, in the case of Paul. I think John MacArthur puts it very well in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to what he writes. Sometimes in our society, quarrels between Christians over rights and property cannot help coming before the secular court. When, for instance, a Christian is being divorced by his or her spouse, the law requires a secular court to be involved. Or in the case of child abuse or neglect, a Christian parent may be forced to seek court protection from the professing backslidden former spouse. But even in those kinds of exceptions, when for some reason a Christian finds himself unavoidably in court with a fellow believer, his purpose should be to glorify God and never to gain selfish advantage. So what is not a legitimate legal recourse for a Christian? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, under normal circumstances, a Christian should not pursue a civil suit of another Christian. 
So, with that background, we can say, now that we understand what the Scripture teaches about the judicial system and its proper use, we can say this, Jesus in Matthew 5 does not mean that his followers may never seek justice, either in the church, if it's a fellow believer, or in the legal system, if it's not. So now let's go back to Matthew 5 and see what Jesus does mean. What does this mean? Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt... Now, in the context, the kind of lawsuit envisioned by Jesus here is a sinful lawsuit brought against you by a person who is sinning. Look back at verse 39. Do not resist an evil person. Remember, in the general principle, that's the idea. So when either an evil person or a person with evil intent tries to sinfully attack you by attacking your personal property, that's the scenario Jesus is talking about. He wants to sue you and take your shirt. The Greek word translated shirt refers to a specific garment that a Jewish male would have worn in the first century. It was slipped over the head and hung down to about the knees, a loose-fitting sort of robe. The fact that Jesus specifically mentions being sued for your inner garment may imply that this believer is, is a very poor Christian. That is, he's a Christian who is poor. Um, and he has nothing else but the shirt on his back. Or it may be that Jesus is using hyperbole. He's saying, listen, if someone sues you to take the very last thing you own, this is how you ought to respond. But regardless, his point is, is that someone with evil intent is suing you to take your personal property. This is essentially theft by legal process. Now, how do we instinctively respond to such attacks? (laughs) You don't have to think very long about that one. We respond with anger and resentment and bitterness and a vengeful, vindictive spirit. John Broadus, a great American commentator writing around the time of the Civil War, wrote this in his commentary on this passage. A man who is threatened with an unjust lawsuit will show a peculiar animosity. And if he thinks himself unjustly treated in the sentence, a peculiar rancor and vengefulness, declaring that he will make his adversary suffer for it. Rather than feel and act like this, our Lord says, it would be better even voluntarily to give far more than the aggressor was awarded by the court. Jesus says, If you belong to me, if you're one of my followers, then let me tell you how I expect you to respond when there are intentional attacks against your property. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. The coat was the typical outer garment worn over that knee-length shirt. It was the more expensive of the two garments. In fact, in the first century, it would have taken the typical worker about two weeks' pay to buy this coat. Now, it raises an interesting question. If the coat was the more valuable of the two garments, and it was the outer garment as opposed to the inner garment, why wasn't this man being sued for the outer garment, for the coat? And the answer is because the Old Testament absolutely forbids it. Listen to Exodus twenty-two twenty-six. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. So if you ever do take it, 
it, it has to be returned to him by the time it's nighttime. Why? Listen to Deuteronomy 24, 13. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. For the poorer people, this cloak was not only a source of of clothing during the day, it was the blanket at night. And God absolutely forbids the taking of this coat. And so instead he sues for the shirt. Now, when you understand that, you understand what a strong point Jesus is making here. Because Jesus says, if someone sues you to take what they can take, your shirt, then you need to have a spirit that's willing to give them what they could never sue you to get, and that is your coat. Wow. That's counterculture. Jesus' point is this. He's not commanding us literally to give away every piece of clothing so that we walk around naked or in loincloths. His point is this. If someone sues you with an evil intent and motive, you must not misuse the eye-for-an-eye command like the scribes did as an excuse to harbor a grudge or to pursue personal revenge. William Hendrickson writes, we have no right to hate the person who tries to deprive us of our possessions. Love, even toward him, should fill our hearts. In fact, listen carefully, if the only alternatives are personal revenge, are giving up everything we have, then Jesus says, give up everything you have. Why? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now that gives whole new meaning to why we give him the coat. You know, some people read that and they say, yeah, you want to give him the coat because you want to have the moral high ground. You're showing that you're more righteous. No, it's none of that. Jesus is demanding something far greater than that. He's saying... You need to so love that person who is sinfully attacking you that instead of thinking about getting even, you're thinking about that person's good. That's the point. We should be so genuinely interested in that person's good because we love them that we will do whatever needs to happen even if it means personal sacrifice. So, How does this apply to us practically today? What are some of the contemporary attacks on our personal property? This is not an exhaustive list, but unfortunately here are some pretty common ones. Frivolous lawsuits brought against us either personally or against the businesses that we own. One spouse trying to take advantage of another in the divorce process and the distribution of the assets. A relative taking advantage of an older family member's financial prosperity. A contentious neighbor who initiates an over-the-fence battle. An unscrupulous business or workman who takes advantage of you, who asks for money up front and never completes the project, or who gives you subpar work or products. An employer who takes financial advantage of you in some way. Again, in these cases, there may be criminal wrongdoing, Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't turn them into the authorities, and he's not saying that you can't seek justice in the church if it's, an un, if it's a Christian or in the court system if it's an unbeliever. 
What he is saying, though, is this. We must not allow ourselves to harbor a grudge or pursue personal revenge that can never be a part of any of our response, even to financial injustice. Even when someone unjustly tries to gain our belongings. Jesus' primary point in this paragraph is this. We must intentionally do good to those who attack us in return for their evil. That's the point. Give him your coat because you're trying to do good to him. Why? Well, look down at verse 45. Because God does good to those who are his enemies, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says, listen, you're going to be my followers? You're going to be mine and related to the Father, then you need to imitate the Father. And here's how he is. He loves his enemies. Think about that for a moment. God loves and does good to those who hate him, those who deny his existence, those who only use his name for a curse. He still does them good. And Jesus says, that's how you're to respond to those who set themselves as your enemies. But that's not all Jesus requires of us when evil people attack us with their evil intentions. Notice back at verse 44, not only are we to do good to them, that's not enough, but we're to love our enemies and we're to pray for those who persecute us. I want you to think for a moment about the people in your life who have most deeply hurt you, against whom you could be tempted to hold a grudge. Maybe they've insulted you as in the first illustration, or maybe they've really diminished your own personal assets and property. What's your response to those people? Is it anger and bitterness and resentment and trying to get even? Or is it what our Lord commands here? Is it a genuine heart of love for them? A desire to do good to them? praying for them, even as you're pursuing some measure of reasonable justice? That's what our Lord commands of us. By the way, how you consistently respond to those who sin against you in this way is a great barometer for whether or not you're in Christ. If you consistently carry around a heart of bitterness and anger and resentment, a list of offenses that have been done against you through the years, and you carry those around and you savor those and you enjoy those and you hold those against the people who have wronged you, then according to Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving slave, it's very unlikely that you have experienced God's forgiveness. Because a person who has come to know God's forgiveness and the great debt they have been forgiven finds it easier, not always easy, but easier to forgive those who sin against us. So let me urge you to examine yourself. If you live in bitterness and anger and resentment over past wrongs, then you may very well not be a follower of Christ at all. Jesus says, love them, Do good to them and pray for them so that you may be like your Father in heaven. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of An Eye for an Eye. Join us next time for part seven as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. And Tom, what Christ teaches about government oppression in Matthew chapter five is exactly what some believers may need to hear today, isn't it? And the truth is it's going to become even a bigger issue, I believe, in the days ahead. So it's so important that we understand as believers how to respond to an unjust, unfair government, to persecution and oppression from our government. I would encourage you to go to the Word Unleashed website, and there you'll find a series that I did on Romans 13. It's a timely passage. It speaks to the needs of today, and it really just fills out in greater detail what we're learning together here in Matthew chapter 5. So I encourage you to think about the right and biblical response. Don't be given to fear. God is sovereign over government, and we can trust him. We need to obey him, do what's right, and trust him with the outcome. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.